account written by John. I pray that you will speak to us through this passage and give us clarity of understanding. In your name, amen. So if you have your phones on, please turn them off. Well, two elderly ladies, Mabel and Evie, met in a cafe for a nice cup of coffee and some cake. And after a while, Mabel looked closely into Evie's ear and said, Evie, it looks like you have a suppository in your ear. She said, what? <clears throat> she said, it looks like you have a suppository in your ear. Oh, you're right. Well, at least I know where my hearing aids are. <laughs> oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> oh, gotta love getting old. Mm. <laughs> Well, what a contrast we have in our study um, from last week, two weeks ago, with this week, from Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman. One commentator, Boyce, said, he was a Jew, she a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee, she would belong to no religious party. He was a scholar, she was uneducated. He was very, very moral, she was immoral. He had a name, she is nameless. He was a man, she was a woman. He came at night, possibly to protect his reputation. She had no reputation. She came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking this woman, and this woman was sought by Jesus. So the clear point that we see in all of this is that both men and women of every class, of every age, need the gospel and have the opportunity to respond to it. These two stories at the beginning of the gospel of John show us there's no one too high or too low to respond to the message of salvation. The love of God has no limitations. It transcends race and gender and ethnic background and religious backgrounds. Jesus is, in com is a complete contrast to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Says he chooses to make himself known to a Samaritan and a woman at that. So we look at Jesus is the living water. First, we have the setting uh, word about Jesus and how popular he was becoming had reached the Pharisees. So when the disciples of John were baptizing, or uh, the, of Jesus were baptizing more than the disciples of John, Jesus no, wanted no part of them inciting any kind of competition. So he left Judea and he went into the Galilee area. And we read, and he had to pass through Samaria. The majority of Jesus, uh, Jewish people at that time took a longer route to avoid any contact with Samaritan people who lived in this area, and they disdained them. <clears throat> Samaritans, as you probably read, were a mixed race of part Jewish, part Gentile, a people group that grew out of the Assyrian captivity back when the northern tribes were taken in 727 BC. So they were rejected by the mainstream of Israel because they couldn't prove their genealogy. As a result, they had their own temple and their own little religious thing going on at Mount Gerizim. And there was intense, intense prejudice and disdain for this people group from the Jewish people. And probably both ways. But Jesus was compelled to pass through Samaria in order to stop at this particular village, not because it was a shorter route, but because he had this divine appointment. Jesus was fulfilling the mission that the Father gave him to do. And that is why he had to go this way. And he came to the outskirts of the city called Sychar. And near this town was a piece of land rich in Jewish history, a place that Jacob gave to his son Joseph in Genesis 48, where he ultimately was buried. And there was a deep well about a half a mile from Sychar. <clears throat> and the sixth hour of Jewish time would have been noon. So Jesus, being very weary from their long walk, uh, was sitting by the well. 
And Jesus is in the exact place at the right time that God ordained him to be there for this appointment. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I will not have to be thirsty nor come all this way to dwell, to, to draw water. So Jesus in his humanity is hot and tired and thirsty from their journey. Notice there's no other women here at the well. It was so hot, most women would have gone out in early evening when it was not that intense heat. But she came at noon, perhaps to avoid gossip or comments from other women in the village. There were other sources of water closer to the village, but she chose to come out all this way at the hottest time of the day to avoid anybody else. And Jesus made a simple request for a drink. And him doing this just blew her away. Men didn't speak to women in public. And rabbis, which she would perceive he is, didn't associate with women like her. Jewish people had nothing to do with Samaritans, and yet Jesus could care less about the social taboos of his day and culture. Jesus' disciples had gone off to town to find food for them, and even in doing that was breaking a cultural tradition because you can guarantee that that wasn't going to be kosher food coming from this people. This woman is shocked that this Jewish man would ask her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. I thought it's interesting. She likely passed the disciples coming and going. They were headed to town. She's headed out. And you can be pretty sure they didn't say a word to her uh, or give her the time of day. But here this woman is surprised that this Jewish man would speak to any woman all, at all, let alone her. She realized that Jesus taking a drink from her uh, stuff would be drinking water from her cups or silverware that are not kosher. They're not ceremonially clean. And even though Jesus was the one who was thirsty, it's amazing how he turned the conversation back towards her and spoke as if she's the thirsty one and he's the one with the water. Of course, she still thinks he's speaking of literal water and she's intrigued that she could have a living water that she'd never thirst again. Jesus was speaking to her of salvation, the fact that she could be forgiven all of her sins and be set free and be obedient to glorify God in her life. Living water back then was thought to refer to fresh water as opposed to stagnant water. Did Jesus have some type of water source better than her famous ancestor Jacob who had dug this well? Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this well will get thirsty again. But the water he gives brings a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus is the living water who brings spiritual refreshment to desperate lives. She wants this living water, thinking then she won't have to make this trip out to the well anymore. But before she could receive this water, she needed to understand her own sinful state as well as the truth about who Jesus is. And that is always the way a person comes to faith 
in Jesus. They must first see how incredibly sinful and spiritually desperate and destitute they are in their hearts because then that gives them a realization that they need a savior so that they understand what he has done and accomplished for them on their behalf by his death and resurrection. So bringing about conviction of sin is what happens next. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. So the woman said, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Well, she needed to have a real thirst for the living water, the eternal life Jesus was offering. This thirst would not be awakened in her heart unless there was a sense of guilt over her sin and an awareness of her sin. Jesus mentioning her husband was the best way to remind her of her her immoral life. And now he's speaking to her conscience. The truth is every person is enslaved by their sin and only Jesus can make you set free from that domination in your life. And he was giving her the opportunity to admit her sin so that she could be delivered from her sinful, ungodly lifestyle. Her attempt to divert the subject is evident in her very quick answer, well, I have no husband. And does she want Jesus to think I'm I'm a widow or I just never married? She has put up her guard in her very quick answer and is not ready at this point to talk about her sin. Her attempt to conceal the truth about her life comes to an abrupt end when Jesus speaks about her lifestyle. And he totally unmasks her sin and speaks about her past five husbands and the present live-in who she hasn't bothered to marry. Having all of this knowledge of her life, she realizes he must be someone special, a prophet. And by exposing her sins, Jesus is preparing her heart to understand her need for this gift of living water. He reveals the character of this woman in her past and present, and as he reveals, he is the omniscient one and clearly greater than Jacob, who she brought up. The importance of true worship is now presented in verses 20 through 26. We don't know what her inner thoughts are at this point. She certainly feels uncomfortable talking about her sin. So she changes the subject as now she talks about, well, you know, there's a lot of different opinions about how to worship and where to worship. You Jews do this. We do this. And the Holy Spirit is working in her heart. So she's thinking, where would I go to even worship in this present condition? And Jesus makes it clear it's not where one worships, but rather the attitude of the heart and mind and obedience to God and to his truth. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So both Jews and Samaritans were very focused on external rituals and religious activities, not on the issue And Jesus is making it clear the issue is him being worshipped from the heart. And true worship is a matter of the heart, and it's not where you are when you worship. And it must be based on the truth, which is revealed in God's word. There are countless millions of people, whether it's under the umbrella of Christendom or a false religion, who are sincere worshippers of a God they believe to be their God. And they worship, but it's not in truth. That's the big missing part of it. She's still confused, but hopes, well, one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to clear all this up for all of us. And he says, I who speak to you am he. 
wow, wouldn't you have loved to have been there at that moment? Wow. Literally, this verse reads, I who speak to you am. Here is the I am. This is a supreme moment as the Messiah clearly discloses to her who he is. He is the only answer to all the questions that may have come into her heart and mind, and she must have been blown away. This man who had just asked her for a drink now tells her clearly that he is the long-awaited for Messiah. She knew nothing of past miracles that had happened before uh, Jesus came to their city. And based on him knowing all about her, that was enough to believe his claim that he was the Messiah. This woman who tried to avoid mingling with people in her town now runs boldly to her town and starts telling everybody she can speak to to come out and meet this Jesus. Having just told this woman he is uh, the Messiah, the disciples now arrive on the scene and she's leaving and she leaves her water pot and as she heads off her town to be now this bold witness to everybody. And the disciples clearly are shocked that he's sitting having a conversation with her. They've gotten the food that they went to get and they're um, wanting Jesus to eat. After she left, they, they present the meal and Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus explains further, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And his men couldn't understand. He didn't, they didn't get what he was talking about. Did somebody else bring him food that we didn't know about? They thought uh, they just didn't get what he was saying. Jesus has to explain that doing the father's will, which in this case was speaking to this woman, had actually brought a nourishment to his soul. I wonder if we really think about that when we're doing ministry or service to others, that that is more nourishing to our spiritual heart and soul than having a good meal at a nice restaurant. So it's not just about having physical food to eat, but rather doing the will of the Father. The disciples needed to learn that the truth about him being the Messiah must be first preached in Israel, but it was going to cross all cultural barriers and all people groups. Meanwhile, this woman purposely left her water pot by Jesus as she took off for town. Perhaps she wanted him to have the ability to get more water to drink. Perhaps she didn't want to get slowed down carrying it, whatever. She gathered a crowd in town, tells them, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She encourages the people to check out for themselves to see if this is a Messiah. And so while she's busy doing that, inviting everyone to come out and meet this Jesus, he's, Jesus is having a conversation now with his disciples about the harvest. In verses 34 through 8, the disciples would have been very familiar with the world of agriculture. Typically, the same farmer who sows the seed is the one, you know, to reap the harvest. But Jesus teaches his men that in the spiritual realm, it can be that one sows and another one reaps. In this case, they would have the privilege of sharing in the harvest from this little village of Sychar, though they had planted no seed themselves. Jesus told them, lift up your eyes and look to the fields. They are white for harvest. Maybe the whole town was coming out when he pointed, look, look. Perhaps Jesus is pointing, um, as I said, to that group of people on their way. There are spiritual souls ready to be harvested, men, right now. In the world of agriculture, there is a considerable weight between planting and reaping. But in this case, there's hardly any time that has gone by between sowing the seed and reaping the harvest. Jesus commissions these men to reap where they had not labored. So in verse 39, the story continues from when the woman left her water pot and went into town. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He has told me all things that I have done. 
So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. These people get it. These despised people get it. Jesus fulfilled his divine appointment. He stayed two days in this little village in Samaria. They referred to Jesus as the savior of the world. Had it been up to Jewish leaders in Israel, all other people groups would have been excluded in their mind once the Messiah came to them. Jesus' mission and ministry was to the Jewish people, but went far beyond Israel's border to include men and women from every nation and tribe and tongue on the planet. Jesus had set the precedent for the truth of his saving work for the whole world. John the Baptist made a very accurate and true statement when he saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're reminded here, ladies, of the importance of prayer and giving your day and all of your activities about your day to the Lord. I hope you spend time before you're out and hit the road in prayer, in his word, and asking, What divine appointments do you have for me today? We make our agenda. We make our schedule. These are things, these are appointments I've got to do. But we need in that to give to the Lord our blank day with we don't know what's coming today, the rest of the day. But he does. And he may have a divine appointment for you to be used to be a word of encouragement, to share a seed of truth with someone who's going to cross your path, whether it's in a store or someone that you need to make contact with. Jesus was all about doing the Father's will. That's what he was tuned into. Is that what you're tuned into? I mean, or is your day just about what I have to do today? Well, the next segment of this chapter goes into Jesus confronting here on belief. After his two fruitful days in Sychar, which had to be wonderful, uh, Jesus now continues his trip to Galilee to the Jewish people who were the main focus of his ministry. And in complete contrast to these Samaritans, Jesus testifies that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He knew he would receive no honor where he was going, especially when he got to his own village of Nazareth. But there still would be some who would believe in him. And so we read that he came into Galilee. It says the Galileans received him. That doesn't mean that they accepted him as their Messiah for salvation. Rather, they had seen miracles Jesus had done in Jerusalem. And they were hoping for some more impressive signs from from him. In other words, the Galileans didn't have a genuine acceptance of who Jesus really is. It's just like, what, what might you do for us here? Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea in Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus has returned to the place he did his first miracle. And the focus is, uh, as I said, just maybe more miracles he might do for people. We are first introduced then to this royal official, very likely uh, in the service of Herod Antipas, who was over the Tetrarch over Galilee from 4 BC to 39 AD. This man, this nobleman, had traveled about 16 miles in order to come and get Jesus and bring him back to his home to perform a miracle on his dying son. 
We don't know exactly what he had heard in the past or seen himself in the past about Jesus, but he was highly motivated to find Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son. He repeatedly begged Jesus, come heal my son. Clearly his son was at death's door and this man has a hope that Jesus will be the miracle worker and intervene. But he had very limited faith at this point. We see he has two faulty lines of thinking. He thought Jesus would have to travel from Cana there, 16 miles, in order to perform the miracle at the bedside of the sick child. He also thought that if the child died, it would be too late for Jesus to do anything. And that's not true. In other words, if you don't rush there right now, he may be dead and then it'll just be too late. So this was the extent of his faith. You see the contrast of him and the centurion who said, oh, just say the word. You know, you don't have to come to where I am. My, you know, <laughs> just say the word. I know that my uh, servant will be healed. And the Syrophoenician woman who sought Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter as well. Incredible faith. That's not what we see in this nobleman. He wasn't looking for spiritual truth or how he could have eternal life or his sins forgiven. He just wanted a miracle for his dying child. Jesus rebukes the unbelief of the Galileans and really this man. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the word people has been written in an italics. Uh, it's really a rebuke. Unless you uh, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He rebukes this royal official and the Galileans as well, who ignored his message and only focused on what he could do for them. Despite the rebuke, the man continues to beg Jesus for the life of his child. And Jesus says in verse 50, go, your son lives. The man at this point then believes what Jesus spoke. He believes. Now he believes. And he starts off. And it was a lengthy walk, clearly. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the hour that Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is, again, a second sign Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So it would seem the man then took to heart Jesus' rebuke. As Jesus healed his son, he tells the man, go, because your son lives. And at that very moment, the miracle was performed and his son was completely healed. So this father, who only had faith to believe a miracle might happen, now believed the word Jesus spoke to him. And he couldn't see that miracle happening at the time. He wasn't there, but he believed it and he accepted the word Jesus said. At that moment, he had no tangible proof, but he believed as he took Jesus at his word and he started off to home. And while en route, he was, it was affirmed as his uh, slaves told him, he's alive, he's well. And the father's thrilled. It confirms the miracle that taken place just when Jesus said, and he believed, the rest of his family believed uh, in who Jesus is. So it wasn't just that he believed that he could do a miracle. Now he believed uh, the word that Jesus spoke and now he had faith to believe in who Jesus was. This is the second miracle Jesus performed in Cana when he came out of Judea into Galilee. In his first sign in Cana, we saw the power of Jesus over the physical universe to you know, bypass a grape growing on a vine and it being processed, fermented, and water was just instantly wine. And in this case, we see that distance is no obstacle to show God his power and his love for the desperate, desperately ill. 
This father goes from only having belief to Jesus to do a miracle to true faith in the word of Jesus that led him to faith in the person of Jesus. And as we read, his whole family believes. So this father uh, grew in his faith. This is the same Jesus that we are called to believe and to follow. His word given to us through the Bible. Jesus must be believed for who he is. He is the God of the universe. And people who come to him only seeking for him to be their own personal miracle worker and fix my marriage and fix my kid and fix my disease and just come and do this for me and then I'll believe in you, they have it all wrong. We have often weak faith just like this man. Just do this for me, okay, God? But Jesus wants to be believed for his word and who he is. He wants to be trusted. He is God. He laid down his life to pay for a debt of sin that we each have individually. So we learn from these two encounters. First with the Samaritan woman, we see that our sinful state has to be recognized. Being how sinful we are separates us from a holy God. And that he alone deserves to be worshipped. And only when we see that desperate state of, of our sinfulness can we see our need for God and for the Lamb of God who paid for our debt of sin. I pray that we learn from this chapter the importance as well of sharing our faith. Jesus was masterful in his witness to the Samaritan woman and how he brought the conversation around and confronted her with truth. We see how Jesus did the will of the Father regardless of social taboos of his culture our love for our Savior should drive us to care about all kinds of people. Maybe the people in your flesh you don't really like. It doesn't matter the class. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter anything. We are to be his spokesman. We also see the progression of faith that leads to salvation demonstrated in the life of this nobleman. I pray that our study has made it clear to you what type of faith you really have. Is he just your fix-it God? Is that why you've come to him? Or is it based on who he is and surrender to his authority in your life? Is there confidence in who he is and what he has done on your behalf? And I encourage you, make every day a blank sheet of paper that you offer up to the Lord. This is my life today. What do you want me to do? Yes, I have a doctor appointment. Yes, I got to do the laundry. Yes, I got to figure some groceries. But in all of that, don't be so busy into your own thing that you got to do that you fail to see. He brings divine appointments all the time into our lives. How many times we just walk away? Oh, I should have said. Oh, I. So let's pray about each day. Think throughout each day. Walk in the presence, his presence each day so that we make and keep those divine appointments. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these two individuals who came to faith. What an honor they had. Uh, to be brought to an understanding of who you are. And we are reading about them. We're reading about you. And you are the same. I pray, Lord, that we would have hearts of surrender to you and to your lordship and to the truth of your word, that we would be worshipers of you and worship you in truth, not in what we wish you would be like, not in meeting our own agenda, but that we would be surrendered children to you and to your authority that we would live each day in light of you walking beside us. And what is it you want me to do in this circumstance? What is it you want me to say here? Who is it you want me to touch today, Lord, that's hurting? Help us to live outside of ourselves, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies. Don't have to clap. That's